Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 50, middle of page 50, continuing the Amidah. And as a reminder, the structure of the Amidah, it's like, we've said this before, it's like a fundraising pitch. You start off praising God, three blessings, then th 13 blessings, requesting God for things, things from God. And then we close with three blessings, three blessings of praise. And what we've explained is that these aren't just praises, blessings, and thanks, but these are also meditations. In other words, they don't just talk to what we need. These blessings literally talk to who we are, and that, that's what we've been exploring. We now start the closing three blessings, the blessings that end the Amida, the blessings that we with which we praise God. Let's uh let's read it inside. Middle of page 50, it's the third paragraph. It's the blessing of Ritzei, known as the blessing of Avodah, where we say, Look with favor, Lord our God, on your people Israel, and pay heed to their prayer. Restore the service of your sanctuary, and accept with love and favor Israel's fire offerings and prayer, and may the service of your people Israel Always find favor. It's at this point where we would insert the Ya'alaviyavo on holidays in Rosh Chodesh. Uh, maybe we'll talk about why soon. But continue to page 51, top of the page. This next paragraph is a continuation of that blessing. It's not actually a separate blessing. And the blessing continues. Our eyes behold, you return to Zion in mercy. Blessed are you, Lord, who restores his divine presence to Zion. Okay, what is the source of this blessing? Where did this blessing come from? The 19 blessings of the Amida, the 18 blessings of the Amida, were compiled by Ezra and his courts shortly after the destruction of the first temple. No more sacrifices, so now we got to pray. we got to bring the sacrifice of our heart. But as we said, he compiled the blessings. He did not author them. They were existing blessings. So the Midrash says, that as soon as the Jews built the Mishkan in the desert. What's a Mishkan? The tabernacle. I, I hate the translation tabernacle because I, I feel like it doesn't mean anything. If somebody was like not familiar with the Torah, so I don't want to use Hebrew words. I'll use the word tab tabernacle. <laughs> it's, who's that going to help? <laughs> um, a dwelling place. A dwelling place for God. The permanent dwelling place is in Jerusalem. The temporary dwelling place was in the desert. And as soon as the Jewish people built this dwelling place for God, now God can reside with us. He revealed himself at Sinai, but that was too much of a revelation. We have to kind of build up to that revelation. We have to invite that revelation. And that's the building of the tabernacle that we were commanded shortly after. As soon as that was built, the, the Midrash says the ministering angels recited this blessing. Blessed are you, Lord, who returns his presence to Zion, to the Jewish people. The simple context of this blessing, the simple meaning of this blessing is we just had 13 requests. We asked for 13 different things, whether it be wisdom, health, forgiveness, 
repentance, redemption, proper judgment, right? All the various, right? Supporting the righteous. Now we say, God, hear our prayers. Accept this service. Just like in the temple, there would be, there, there was indication that you would receive our sacrifices. So after these prayers, indicate that you're accepting our prayers. Right? Hear her prayers. Take it. Let's take it. Right? Accept it. Willfully accept our prayers. But again, the Amida isn't just requesting things. The Amida is talking to the soul. And so is this blessing. What we're asking is not only should our prayers be accepted by God, we should be accepted by God. Because the deeper dimension of prayer and of the Amida, again, is not asking for things, but is connecting with ourselves, connecting with our souls. Right? Each one of these blessings were a meditation. So now we're asking God, let us be accepted. Just as we were accepted in the temple. Just as... What was it like to be in the base of Mikdash? What was it like to be in the temple? What was it like to be in the Mishkan? You know what it was like? You know what you got? You, If you listen to interviews, to anybody who described their encounter with the Rebbe, what do they feel? What do they describe? Somebody who sees right through their soul. Somebody whose eyes just pierce them. Somebody who believes in them. Somebody who sees their potential. Somebody who sees their greatness. Somebody who sees that they have a divine connection to God, even if they don't see it in themselves. That's what you get at the Beit HaMikdash. You go to the Beit HaMikdash where God's presence is most palpably felt. And you experience... You experience God. You feel it. You're on fire. We're going to digress for a second. Because this is interesting. Jump ahead, please. To page... We're going to jump ahead to the Musaf, to the holiday Musaf, which we've just recited, actually, not too long ago. To page 343. John, don't turn to page 343. you got to be safe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> for those who are listening and not watching, he's driving. Okay, page 343, where we have the holiday Musaf. And what is a Musaf? What is a Musaf prayer? Musaf means the additional prayer. In the times of the Beit HaMikdash and holidays, there was a Musaf korban, an additional sacrifice. So these days we have an additional prayer. And part of this prayer, ironically, on the joy of the holiday, we lament our inability to actually bring this sacrifice in the literal form and that we're confined to our verbal, uh, to a verbal sacrifice to prayer given the diaspora, given the exile. 
And here's what we say. Um, it's the middle bowl, it's the middle paragraph. It starts with, but because of our sins. But because of our sins, we were exiled from our land and driven far from our soil. And we were unable to go up, to appear, and to bow before you. And to discharge our obligations in your chosen house. Wait, the Beit HaMikdash. Let me ask you a question. These days, right, there was a time where you go up to the Beit HaMikdash, you bring your sacrifice, and you're just, the inspiration is, think about your most inspired moment, your most Jewishly inspired moment. Right? Imagine a magnified version of that in the Beit HaMikdash, being there with all the Jewish people. But because of our sins, as we say in this prayer, we're unable to go up to appear and bow before you. Now let me ask you a question. I understand why we can't go up there. <laughs> we can't access it. We can't appear before you. Right, Your presence isn't revealed as it once was. But why can't we bow before you? It says we can't go up, appear and bow before you. Well, part of that's true. But we should be able to bow before you still. Why can't we? So here's another way to look at it. What used to happen is you'd go up, you'd appear before God, and as a reaction to that, you'd bow before God. You weren't bowing to God out of obligation. It was the natural reaction. I'm going to submit myself to something greater because I feel it. We're not able to do that anymore. Now, we could physically bow to God. And we do, right? But our bowing is not so much a reaction to our experience as much as it is the sitter saying, now it's time to bow. <laughs> it's a little bit more mechanical these days. Right? It's not the same. Now go back to our prayer. Back to page 50. We're asking God to heed our prayers and restore the service to your sanctuary. Right now we're in exile. And our souls are not dominant. We don't feel the experience of God um, as much as we feel ourselves. <laughs> we're much more comfortable with our animal soul than we are with our divine soul which means we're more aware of our own desires than God's desires. I don't mean just knowledgeable. I mean sensitive. We're more sensitive to what we want than to what God wants. We're not tzaddikim. It's not our default setting. Right? Tzaddikim are the, a tzaddik is the exception to this. A tzaddik does whatever they want, and that happens to be mitzvahs. <laughs> right? But for us, regular folk, we're not doing whatever we want because we 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 uh, if we were to do whatever we want, that would not be a good thing, right? And that's because our soul, our divine soul, our nefesh alekis, our godly soul, isn't prevalent. So we say, God, we've been going through these various meditations throughout prayer. We've been going through the meditations of the climax and the amida. Restore our service. Let us get that same experience that we once had in the Beit HaMikdash. Let us get our souls revealed. Reveal our souls. The experience that we had in the temple, 
We want that now. Now, there's an advantage to not having it, by the way. Because we're making more uh, independent choices. And we're less angelic, so we choose. We choose to be divine. We'll talk more about that soon. This is a big mistake of the spies and is we'll talk about that soon because that's a fascinating thing. But I, I want to show you something fascinating in the words here. Um, take a look in the Hebrew, please. Second line. The English is, is kind of funny, but <clears throat> the second line in the Hebrew. Middle of the page, page 50, Vahashev Ha'avoda. Return the service, Lidvir Beitecha. Right? The English says, Restore the service to your sanctuary. Beitecha means your house. What does the word Devir mean? The Devir Beitecha. Hmm. Restore the service to Devir Beitecha. And the commentaries actually ask what that means. What is the word Devir? It's a funny word. It's being used as a sanctuary. Apparently, the word devir means sanctuary. It's an unusual word for sanctuary. If you looked at the word devir, what would you think it meant? What would you think the root word is? I'll tell you what I would think. Davar. Like a davar Torah. A word. And they're related. What do words do? What are the function of the functions of words? Words reveal. Because if you're thinking something great, but you can't say it to me, I won't know about it. I won't know about it. <laughs> the only way to reveal what is going on in your mind, I mean, through actions, but words, words reveal. If you use them properly, words can conceal, right? You have certain, we'll, we'll be nameless here, but you have certain public speakers that are so focused on the sophistication of their word choice and their stellar vocabulary that you forget about what they're trying to say. <laughs> they forget about what they're trying to say because they're so used to, they're, so try, they're trying to impress everybody with their words. Right, so in that case, the words aren't revealing. They're just, they're getting in the way, right? When you're too focused on the phone that you're using instead of the conversation that you're having on the phone, right? The message doesn't get across. But generally, the function of words is to reveal. What is the function of God's house that we're referring to as Devir? A place to reveal God. That's what his home is. And as in the temple, God was revealed and our sacrifices were accepted. We're asking God... We want to make a home for you in our own selves, in our own hearts, and our own sacrifices, our own service to you, our own prayer. We want it to be accepted. In English, we want to become more soul-oriented. We want to become more sensitive to our souls, sensitive to God, sensitive to our values, which is halacha, the Torah. Because we are so sensitized to what we want, 
speaking for myself here, but I think uh, that's human nature, right? Unless somebody is a tzaddik, a, a non-tzaddik, at best, is doing everything they're supposed to do. But a tzaddik wants to do what they're supposed to do. But we might have areas in our life where we're, we're like a tzaddik. But we're asking God, resensitize ourselves. Because if we are soul-oriented and we want ourselves to be a home for you, we're going to fully experience you there. Just like we fully experienced you in the Beit this in the temple. Now, the advantage to the non-tzaddik, to us regular folk, what motivates... What motivates you to do a mitzvah? Truth. You can argue, if we were to play devil's advocate here, right? Who's better, a tzaddik or a regular person? So we could play devil's advocate. On the one hand, a tzaddik is inspired. A tzaddik gets it. A tzaddik experiences the truth. And as a reaction... Does what this wants, you know, and fully commits to what they're supposed to do. Just like that Jew who went to the temple and experienced God and is going to just bow down to God and do what they're supposed to do. On the other hand, us regular folk, there's an advantage. <laughs> I'm not inspired. I don't have a divine experience. So what's motivating me to engage in a mitzvah and commit to it? Because it's the right thing to do. It's right. <laughs> You can argue that perhaps the tzaddik's not, and the Tanya chapter 35 talks about this. You can argue perhaps that a tzaddik isn't doing it because it's right. He's just in love with God. But what if he didn't love God? <laughs> Us regular folk, this is the truth. Who cares if I love God or not? Which relationship is more stable? There's advantages to both, right? There's advantages to being inspired. There's advantages to doing what is right, not because you're inspired, but because it's the truth. In the times that Beit HaMikdash, we were inspired. Now during exile for the last 2,000 years, we've been doing what's right because it's the truth. When Mashiach comes... We're going to bridge both worlds together. We're going to experience the truth, and 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 be, it was motivated ultimately by our independent choice. But the reason, just as a side thing, you know the story with the spies that Moshe sent to Israel. They came back with a bad report, right? It's going to be in the Parshan a few weeks from now. The Jews are. Traveling through the desert, ready to go to Israel. And God gives Moshe permission to send 12 spies to Israel, scout out the land, find out the best entry point, figure out how to get in. The spies are sent to Israel, they go in, and they mess up catastrophically. You know why they messed up? Because they gave their opinion. Nah, I don't think... 10 out of 10 of them did. I don't think we're able to enter this land. <laughs> Not going to happen. They're, they're greater than us. We're too weak. We're too small. We're like grasshoppers. They're giants. Not happening. 
And the entire Jewish nation is now discouraged from going into Israel. Now God is furious. Moshe is furious. And, oh my gosh, a big mess. A big mess. Where did these spies go wrong? What is going on here? They knew about the promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham, we're going into Israel. They knew that Egypt, the 210-year slavery, was a mere pit stop. They received the Torah at Mount Sinai. They understood that the whole trajectory of Jewish existence and of world existence was these Jews getting into Israel. They knew that. They were educated people. Then all of a sudden, nah, I don't think we can do it. Uh, they were educated people. Where did this mis Where did they go wrong? Where did this mistake come from? So here is one of the explanations. These spies appreciated being genuine, being truthful. They appreciated the advantage of the exile mindset. That I'm committing to Judaism not because I'm inspired, but because it's true. And as soon as we get to the land of Israel, what's going to happen? We're going to be inspired. We're not going to be genuinely connected to God anymore. They were desert Jews. They appreciated that we're in a bland desert and we could still be connected to God. We're going to be in Israel. It's a sacred land. It's comfortable to some degree, spiritually. We're going to be focused on ourselves and less on God. They meant well, but you know what the problem with that is? They don't get to make that executive decision. God says, you want to just commit to me because it's real, not just because you feel it. But guess what? I want you to feel it. That's what I want. <laughs> I want you to experience it. I don't want you to just serve me. I want you to love me. Right? How offensive to God. It, their altruism was selfish. God wants them to go to Israel, and they say, yeah, but we'll be better servants if we don't go to Israel. Because we won't be inspired, we'll be able to just do the truth. Because it's true, not because we feel it. And God says, yeah, I want you to do the truth because it's true, and I want you to feel it. <laughs> and I want you to go to Israel. Go back to our prayer now, and we say, well, God, if that's what you want, make it happen. Restore the service to your house. Use the word house euphemistically for an experience of God. That's why we use the word devir from the word devar, speech. Speech connotes revelation. Your house is a place of revelation. Let us experience revelation. You know how we do that? Through awakening within ourselves, passion. In the English, the third line, it says, and accept with love and favor Israel's fire offerings and prayer. 
the fire offerings are referring to the sacrifices in the temple that we're going to one day have that we're praying for. But if we look at the sitter not as a request to God, but as a meditation to ourselves, to our souls, what else can the fire offering be referring to? The soul. God, light our souls on fire, man. Light us up. Now, if you'll notice, it says fire offerings, plural, and that's actually accurate. Look in the Hebrew. Third line, uh, second line, sorry, second to last word. The Ishe Israel, the fires of Israel. How do you say fire in the singular? Ish. Fire in plural, Ishe, fires. The fires of Israel. Fires, two fires? What two fires? We have two souls. We have our divine soul. We want that to be on fire. We have our animal soul. We want that to be on fire too. We want our, our animal soul to be on fire. Your animal soul has a fire. Our animal soul is passionate. But you know what it's passionate about? Itself. Ourselves. The animal soul is self-focused. It's not a sacred fire. But as soon as we bring it to the altar, with the sitter, our own internal altar, we can reroute it, we can make it a sacred fire. And that's why we see the fires of Israel through their prayers. May the service of your people always find favor. Always. Because if we develop this fire, both of these fires, if our fire for God is not only the fire of the divine soul, the fire of the animal soul, which means I'm not only doing what God wants because it's right, that's the divine soul. I'm doing what God wants because that's what I want. I have self-interest, not like those spies, but I've actually entered Israel. I've entered this space of interest and connection, meaningful, deep connection, not just acceptance and obedience. I have consistency. It's part of who I am. And what does that lead to? Clarity. I might take a look at the next part of the prayer. Top of page 51. May our eyes behold your return to Zion. Okay, let's go to the Hebrew, please. Um... May our eyes see with your return to Zion. With mercy. We want to see you come home. If we awaken both of those fires, if we get ourselves to this space where we ourselves are a temple for God, a place where God is revealed, a place where God is experienced, if we get ourselves to this space where we're not like those spies who just obediently serve God, which is an important step, but that's a starting step. But we're passionately aware of God. We're interested. Our divine soul and animal soul both are on fire. We're connected. 
you know what happens? We start to see. We start to see things differently. Famous saying is uh, seeing is believing, right? But it's actually the other way around. What we see is actually a product of what we believe. Because we, we um, two people could see the same thing, right? But interpret it differently. Two different camera angles. Internal camera angles. Right? Our beliefs shape how we see things. So if we're seeing through the lenses of our default human normal selves, the animal soul, we see um, we see things on a very superficial level. We see what people look like. We don't get to know who they are. We see what we experience in the world. We don't get to experience. We don't get to experience the reason and the purpose behind it. Why we we're just seeing very, life is very superficial, very scientific. Just a bunch of breathing pieces of meat, right? <laughs> but if we upgrade our lenses a little bit, we actually see things differently. That's why right after that prayer where we ask God that we want to experience you internally, we want our animal soul and divine soul to be on fire. Right after as we say, we want our eyes to start seeing. Because our beliefs shape the way we see things. The whole, I don't see it, I can't believe it, it's just not honest. It's a dishonest way of looking at life. Because everything we see is shaped by our beliefs. Everything we interpret is shaped by our beliefs, by our biases. The whole, I can't start learning about faith or teach my children faith because I don't want them to be biased and let them decide. It's not true. Everything, there's always biases. Right? The bias might as well be true. <laughs> the bias might as well be sacred. When we get to that point, and let me let me let me just let me put this in summation for a second. Up until this point, we've been going through many, many meditations that are helping us develop our soul connection, our soul connection to God, our soul awareness. And it's at this point where we say, God, we want our soul not just to be uh, on the peripherals, on the side there. We want it to be a part of who we are deeply. We want it to influence the way we think, the way we behave, the way we feel. We want our passion and lust to be soul-oriented and God-oriented, the animal soul to get on fire. We want to start seeing things differently. And you know what happens then? The next paragraph. Modim anachnu lach. I totally concede to you. That's where we bow down at this point. That this blessing, we start to bow down to God. I totally concede to you. I totally concede to the truth. We did that when we said moda'ani, right? Same word, modima, moda'ani. Moda'ani, we conceded to the truth as well. The difference is we're now educated and conceding to the truth.
When we recited Modani, we just got out of bed. We're conceding to the truth because it's true. We're now conceding to the truth at this point, prefaced by pages and pages of prayer and meditation and connection and education. We're now conceding to the truth, not just because it's true, because we actually believe it's true. When a, when, you know, the, the, when a child says, I don't know, it's not the same thing as an adult saying or an educated person saying, I don't know. That's a big deal. When it, it's a much more mature uh, type of Humility, right? I don't know. Or it's, no, I actually thought about this. I went through this and I don't know. There's something bigger than me. There's a bigger purpose. With an educated attitude, it's much deeper. It's much more meaningful. Okay, homework. We got to practice this. Next time we recite this prayer. Think about those words. Think about the Devir Beitecha. Think about the space within ourselves that we're trying to create where God is experienced and revealed in his own home. The fires of Israel being lit up. The consistency that leads to and the vision and sight that, that leads to. Okay, that's my story. I'm sticking to it.